You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Father, you are the Lord our God. We're grateful for you, who you are. Lord, let this time be all about you. As I open up your word, Lord, illuminate the scriptures. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see what it is that you would have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Um, if you haven't been with us for a while or you're joining us uh, new today, uh, we've been going through the book of John. We've started book of John back in January, and this morning we are going to be in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12 through verse 33. Now, as I was reflecting on this scripture, one of the things that came to mind is expectations. Have you ever expected something that you didn't get, and then you got mad because your expectation wasn't met? Only to find out that the thing you got was better than what you had hoped for. The thing that you got was better than what you hoped for. Here's an example from my own personal life. In 2015, I graduated with my bachelor's in biblical studies from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. I knew that I needed further training. I knew that I needed to continue to go to school. So we planned to move to North Carolina to attend seminary. But as we were putting all of our ducks in a row and getting ready to move, move by the end of the summer, I was certain that there was a church in North Carolina that needed my help. I was absolutely certain that Jesus needed me to accomplish his mission in North Carolina. So I had every expectation that with my bachelor degree in hand, people would be knocking down my door for me to serve in their church, for me to be their pastor. I would have no shortage of opportunities to be the pastor of some sort. I had already got my degree and North Carolina was calling me. I felt accomplished. And I had expectations. Then we get out there and no one was interested in hiring me as a pastor. No one. Mind you, I had a degree, but I had zero experience of being a pastor in any capacity. But I had my expectation. So we got to North Carolina. And after a few months of looking and sending in resumes at different churches, I kind of just gave up. And I did what I always did. I started waiting tables again, just so that we could pay the bills. And I was frustrated. I was frustrated with the situation. I was frustrated with God. I was frustrated that I couldn't use the gifts and the training that God had called me to. I was frustrated that we had moved halfway across the country and I was doing the same exact thing in North Carolina that I was doing when I was in Texas before we moved. I was waiting tables and going to school. What I failed to see before God opened my eyes is that I needed some humbling, that God was still preparing me. I was too arrogant and I was too entitled and God humbled me a little bit and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I was mad because my expectations weren't met. God had a different plan though. He saw a different path and surprise, surprise, his plan was better than my plan. His path was better than my path. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You see, the Jewish people had an idea of what the coming Messiah would look like. They believed that he would be a powerful and kingly man that would come and save Israel, one who would release them from the grip of Rome. They were looking for a nationalistic Messiah. 
And some of them believed Jesus was that Messiah, that he was going to be a king that would save and restore Israel. He would lead them to independence. He would free them from the Roman Empire. And to be sure, Jesus is powerful and he is kingly, but his mission is greater than to save and restore Israel. His mission is greater than one nation. He came to save the world. He came to free all who would believe. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that these Jewish people wanted, but he was the king that they needed. He may not have met their expectations, but he was doing exactly what he needed to do to accomplish his mission. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at different responses to King Jesus. We're going to look at the crowd's response in Jerusalem. We're going to look at the disciples' response to Jesus. We're going to look at religious leaders' response to Jesus. Even the Gentiles are going to have a response to him. And then we're going to look at the call for those who want to follow Jesus and what the expectations are of our Messiah. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you that you weren't the Messiah that we wanted, but you are the one that we needed. That you don't come, you didn't come to just save one nation. You came to save all peoples who would come. And we're grateful for that, Lord, because none of us are a part of that nation. We are the others. We are the Gentiles who are not a part of Israel, but you came to save us regardless because of your goodness, because of your steadfast love, because of who you are, because you have a bigger and better plan to see Jesus seated on the throne in the kingdom of heaven and not a kingdom of this earth. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first up, let's look at what the crowd's response to Jesus was. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day when the large crowd had come to the festival, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So we look at a humble king. Jesus was a humble king. Last week that we talked about the buzz that was happening in Jerusalem. There was buzz because Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So more and more people were hearing about Jesus. More and more people were hearing about this Messiah, this one who raised a man from the dead. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what, what do we read? We read that they took out palm branches to meet him. Have you ever stopped to think about palm branches? Why palm branches? Why do they wave them? You know, we're so accustomed to the story because we, we celebrate Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. Right? But why the palm branches? Did you know that palm branches are an important part of Jewish festivals, especially the festival of tabernacles. But in Jesus's time, they were a relatively new addition to Passover. They weren't added until the Maccabees that we talked about a few weeks ago, cleansed the temple and restored right worship in Jerusalem. And the context can be a little lost on us as we sit here and we assume that we understand and know, but the reality is that these palm branches were a nationalist, uh, nationalistic symbol for the Israelites. They were, they were kind of like the American flag for us, that they would wave these in expectation and hope and preparation for the Messiah as a symbol of their calling up by God. So for the crowd, they were sitting there and they see this man who had raised 
Lazarus from the dead, had healed a lame man, had healed a blind man, and they get excited. These are all prophecies being fulfilled about the Messiah. Maybe this is the guy who came to be king. So let's wave our flags. Let's wave our banners high and bring him in. For the crowd had heard and some had seen what Jesus had done. And they were revitalized with a political enthusiasm. They believed that if Jesus was the Messiah, then they could fly their flags high because the king had returned. They were ready for a political upheaval. And this waving of palm branches was one way that they demonstrated that. They were ready to install their own king, their own rule. And that is demonstrated by what they shout as Jesus is riding into town. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This is a quote, well the first part is a quote from Psalm 118, one of the Hallel Psalms, a celebration of God's greatness of God's power. It's associated with both the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Passover. Hosanna simply means salvation now. And the crowd hoped that God had provided salvation now in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus isn't interested in their expectations. In fact, he's going to shatter their expectation. John tells us that he rides into town on a donkey. He gets a young donkey and he rides into town. Why a donkey? When kings and priests would ride into town, there would usually be a big show. A lot of pomp, a lot of circumstance. The king wanted to display his wealth and his abundance and his prosperity, riding on a white horse with golden chariots and abundance and exuberance. When I was reading about this, the only thing I could think about was that scene in my favorite Disney movie, Aladdin, when Prince Ali comes into town and there's a big parade with elephants and camels and just a a display of his wealth but that's not jesus instead he comes walking or riding in on a donkey he's not riding on a white horse a golden chariot but he comes in on the humblest of animals a young donkey a beast of burden almost to paint a picture that he's not going to be what they expected him to be and then john quotes zechariah 9 9 daughter of Zion, he rode in on a donkey. The Savior riding in on a donkey. The riding in on a donkey fully demonstrates the person and the work of Jesus, that he is humble, that he is a king, but not a king that we desired, a king that we needed. The king of the universe exhibited humility and came riding into town, going to his throne of the cross on a donkey. One of the things that we can see from the crowd's reaction is that it's easy to get Jesus' mission, Jesus' mission and motives wrong. They wanted a king to restore Israel. They wanted a king to overcome and break Rome's hold on them. But he came instead to break the, sin, the curse of sin and death, to establish his kingdom. And let's not get too arrogant and think that we don't do the same thing that the Israelites do. The reality is the kingdom he will establish will be different from the kingdom that many believers want him to establish. Here's what we need to realize, that Jesus' scope and mission is greater than any single nation. In fact, Jesus' kingdom is going to outlast every other kingdom that has ever existed. Since Jesus died, rose again, 2,000 years of history has happened. And guess what has happened in those 2,000 years? Nations have come and nations have gone. 
no matter how big and no matter how powerful they are, they have crumbled. The Roman Empire, responsible for Jesus' crucifixion, lays in ruins today. You can walk through the Colosseum and it's just crumbling away. Let's not forget, God doesn't need earthly kingdoms to accomplish his mission. He may use earthly kingdoms, but he does not need them. He didn't need Rome, but he used them. He doesn't need America, but he's using them. He doesn't need China or Russia or Australia, but he is using them to bring forth his kingdom. You see, God doesn't bow the knee to to kings and countries, nations or empires, but but all will bow the knee to him. We read earlier in Sunday school uh, from Psalm 2, and I'm going to read it again, verses 1 through 6. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Regardless of what's happening in the world, regardless of how out of control everything looks around us, I want you to know that God is still on his throne. And people may plot against him. I mean, people may come against him, but he is still in control. You see, long after Rome's empire fell, God's kingdom pushes forward. Long after Russia and China fall, God's kingdom will remain. And long after America's gone, God's kingdom will endure. Our hope is not in an earthly kingdom or an earthly king. Our hope is in an eternal kingdom with the eternal king. And that eternal king is the humble king, Jesus. The eternal king came and lived a humble life to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The eternal king of, kingdom of God will always be more important than any earthly kingdom. Our focus should always be more on the kingdom of God than the things of this world. We don't want to make the same expectation error that the crowd did. Jesus is concerned with his kingdom, with his glory, and with his people. He isn't concerned with saving Africa, China, Europe, Russia, Australia, or even America. He is concerned with saving people from the grip of sin. He's concerned with saving people from death. He is concerned with hearts being transformed from stone to flesh. He is concerned with making for himself a new people, born again of the Spirit, that will live in the kingdom of God. Listen, it's okay if you don't get it yet. Neither did the disciples. All right, in verse 16 we read this. The disciples, his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, that they had done these that they had done these things to him. The disciples who spent three years with Jesus at this point didn't understand Jesus' mission. They had a delayed understanding. It wasn't until his resurrection that they understood the importance of this moment, that they understood the importance of Jesus, that he is going to make a new people for himself, those focused on and devoted to his kingdom. When Jesus taught these things, the disciples had not yet seen him as he truly was. You see, we have an advantage 2,000 years after the cross. We know the end of the story. We know what Jesus did. But before the disciples, they were still fleshing it out. As Jesus was still living with them, they were still fleshing it out. We've had 2,000 years to figure this out, and we still get it wrong sometimes. 
just know that even if you don't see it now, it's there. Be patient with yourself. Continue to grow. You know, Jesus is, Jesus is bigger and greater than we can even imagine. Like his disciples, we need to continue to grow, continue to learn, continue to remember that his plans and his purposes are greater than my plans and my purposes. Verse 17. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. The sign of, that, of Lazarus being raised, rose from the dead is still strong in Jerusalem. There, there are still those who are telling people about what Jesus had done. And people are believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king because he has done that sign. And they want to meet him. Now the religious leader's biggest fear is happening right now. That Jesus' name, Jesus' renown, his message and his signs are spreading further and wider than they ever expected. No matter how much they tried to squash and mitigate Jesus' influence, they couldn't do it. They had accomplished nothing that they had set out to do. People were still interested. They were still seeking. They still wanted to see and know Jesus. Here's the thing we have to understand is that no matter how much people try to quiet and squash the truth about Jesus, it will never be overpowered. Just think about that. The places where the most restrictions and consequences for following Jesus are in in the world, those places are bursting with the kingdom of God. They are overflowing with the gospel message going to people who are going to lose their lives or be thrown in prison because they believe. We can't quiet or overpower God's kingdom. No matter how much we try, God's kingdom is going to continue to move forward until it is brought to completion. People are going to be drawn to Jesus. No matter how much opposition the gospel faces, it will never be overcome. And that should bring us hope. That should bring us joy. We don't believe in a weak God or a weak message. We believe in a God and a message that overpowers sin and death, overpowers the greatest powers in the world. It has no limits and it knows no boundaries. I think about that kid's song. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Governments may take away our freedom. They may persecute the church, but try as they may, they, may, they will never be able to take away the message. They will never be able to suck the power out of the gospel. We may lose comfort, we may lose freedom, but we must never lose hope. God's not done yet. And as long as he is still on mission to save people, his message will still go forward. In John twelve nineteen, the Pharisees even speak prophetically about what's about to happen. They, they've tried to capture Jesus. They've tried to overcome Jesus and, and nothing has worked. People are still being drawn to him. And they say this, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. People from all over are flocking to Jesus. Jesus, the eternal king. Jesus, the Messiah of the world. And then we see in verse 20 this, now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told the world. 
right here we see in these few short uh, verses that people are being drawn to Jesus. The world is being drawn to Jesus. In John's gospel, whenever it talks about the world, it's talking about the inclusiveness of Jesus, that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah, but he came to save the world. And he demonstrated that by the Greeks coming to visit Jesus. When John refers to the Greeks, they aren't necessarily people from Greece, but rather they're just non-Jewish people. But these, these Greeks are special Greeks because they've come up to worship at the festival. They've come to the Passover, which means one of two things. Either they were full converts to Judaism, which means that they had given in to all the festivals and all of the rites of passage, including circumcision, or they were simply God-fearers, meaning that they worshiped God, but they weren't yet circumcised or they didn't want to go through with circumcision. I kind of understand that. So those Greeks that went to the festival at least admired the Jewish religion. They at least looked at the worship of Yahweh and saw something special, saw something important. And so they came to worship him. And they came to worship him. And something special happens. Let's see what Jesus says in verse 23. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There's beauty in the statement, the hour has come. For most of John, starting all the way back in chapter 2, when Jesus' mom, Mary, comes up to him and says, hey, the party's run out of wine. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And another four or five times throughout the gospel until this point, he's been saying, the hour has not yet come. They couldn't get a hold of him because the hour had not yet come. The time wasn't here. This wasn't the time. And at the sight of the Greeks, those non-Jewish people coming to him, and the heat of the religious leaders on him, Jesus now tells us that the hour has come. And this is a definitive point in the Gospel of John. This is the climactic sign in the Gospel of John was Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The shift in focus was the Greeks being drawn to Jesus. That's when the hour came. What hour is he speaking about? What does this all mean? It's the time that Jesus is going to lay down his life. It is the hour for him to be glorified. Jesus is glorified in his death, and that hour has come. One pastor said it this way, every clock in the universe was waiting for this hour. Every clock in the universe was waiting for this hour. This wasn't just the turning point in Jesus' ministry, but this was the turning point of the whole universe. All of redemption, redemptive history, from Adam to Jesus, this was the moment. From the Israelites being in the wilderness, being saved from Egypt, to Jesus being well, willing to sacrifice himself. Everything that God had been doing from the time he spoke the universe into existence to this moment. The hour had come. Jesus' sole purpose when he came to this earth was to die. That was his purpose. That was his motion, motive. That was his focus to die. And he died to give us life. Jesus knew that this time would come. 
And now the alarm clock has sounded, sounded, the chimes are resounding, and Jesus is going to do his death. This is the final week before the cross. Jesus, after announcing that the hour has come, launches into this mini parable about death producing life. He again appeals to the crowd's knowledge of agriculture. He's talking to the people there. He says the seed planted in the ground must die before it can produce fruit. Jesus is paralleling this truth with his own death. He knows that to produce fruit means that he needs to die. And that was his sole purpose. Die so that many could live. Not only that, but this was the plan from the beginning of time. Jesus' death and his resurrection wasn't a backup plan. It wasn't plan B when Adam messed up. This was plan A from the moment of creation, from before creation began. From the foundations of the earth, God knew what was going to happen. And it was through Jesus' obedience and sacrifice that he would be glorified. But this isn't just the pathway to glory. The glory was in the suffering as well. And this was to fulfill what Isaiah said some 700 years ago before Jesus' coming. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised up and lifted up and greatly exalted. If Jesus had not died sacrificially on the cross, then his death would have not been fruitful for anyone except for himself. Yet his sacrifice, his willingness and obedience to the Father brought much fruit. The reason that you are sitting in this room today is because of Jesus' sacrifice. The reason that you have salvation, that you have been given a new heart, that you have been made into a new creation is because of Jesus' sacrifice. And as his followers, we are called to follow in his footsteps. And that can be hard to hear. The call of the disciple, a disciple of Jesus, is to live a life like Jesus meaning that our calling is a calling to live sacrificially like Jesus did. As his followers, we are to be like Christ. And we know it, right? Intellectually, we know it. And we can even say it with our mouths. We may even believe it in our hearts that we need to live like Jesus. But do we live like Jesus? Do we live a life of sacrifice? Because Jesus leaves no room for personal interpretation here. In verse 25, he says this, The one who loves his life, going to lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If we want to serve Jesus, we must follow Jesus. And if we want to follow Jesus, then that means we must lose our own lives. And if we lose our lives, we will have eternal life. And if we want to be honored by the Father, then we must serve the Son, and to serve the Son is to live sacrificially. Now this verse sounds an awful lot like Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, where Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Now, as a culture, we get so wrapped up in individualism. We think that nothing should get in the way of our own personal self-satisfaction, self-expression, or self-fulfillment. Whether we actually say it or not, many of us believe that the world revolves around us, that I am the center of the world, and that my greatest goal in life is to be happy. 
to be fulfilled, to get whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. But this may sound a little harsh. There's no room for this type of individualism when following Jesus. Sure, you can keep parts of your personality, but if you want to follow Jesus, you are substituting your will, your self-expression, and your self-fulfillment for his. That's what it means to die to self. That's what it means to lose your life, that you replace your will and your desires with his will and his desires. Your selfish desires, your selfish deeds, your selfish, self-centered worldview gets replaced, gets renewed, gets transformed. And why does it do that? So that you can bring glory to God. I know that in our hearts and minds, we don't like to hear that we have to give up our lives. To some of us, it may even sound bad or overwhelming or even evil to our ears that God wants us to give up our lives. But it's not. Because unlike you, God is perfect. God is holy. God is incapable of doing wrong. And if he asks you for your life, you should willingly give it because he willingly gave his. You see, unlike God, who is holy and perfect and incapable of doing wrong, you are capable of all kinds of evil. I am capable of all kinds of evil. And so if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to serve Jesus, we give up ourselves so that God can work through us. And I'm telling you right now, you don't have to do this. You don't have to serve Jesus. You don't have to follow Jesus. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to let God's will replace your own. But know that if you don't submit to Jesus, you don't belong to Jesus. And if you don't belong to Jesus, you don't get the benefits of Jesus. That's a relationship with the Father. You don't have peace. You don't have joy. You don't know true love. You won't have eternal life. But Jesus does offer those things to us. To the person who's going to submit to him, he offers that. That if we follow him and we live sacrificially, obedience to God will mean that, that we will inherit eternal life. Now, obedience to God is not always going to be sunshine and roses. It wasn't for Jesus, but it does not mean that we don't have hope and we don't have peace. We know perfect love when we know the Father. We can experience peace in all sorts of situations when we know the Father. So when it comes to following Jesus, there's a trade-off. Your life for his. And if you choose his life, you will have to live a life of sacrifice. The sacrificial is following Jesus. Jesus was solely concerned with doing the will of the Father. And why was he wanting to do the will of the Father? To bring glory, honor, and praise to him. And he's the example that we should be imitating. It's not going to be easy. And I will tell you from experience that it won't be easy at all. It'll be hard. And if it wasn't, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. In fact, Jesus shows us just how hard it is. Verse 27. My soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But this, that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Right here in these verses, we see turmoil in Jesus. John doesn't provide us with a scene in Gethsemane, right? But this is the closest we get to it. Do you hear the passion in Jesus' word? He doesn't want to die. 
In fact, the word there for troubled is the same word that we learned about with, with uh, Lazarus. And he's deeply troubled. He's anxious. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's fearful of the death, but he knows that he's got to go to the cross. Jesus' cries to the Father is normally in our English translation, a question is after it. But there shouldn't be one. Well, in Greek, there's no punctuation, but most translators put a question mark there, but it's better translated without one. It's better to read that as Jesus crying out in agony, in the pain of knowing that death is right around the corner. I mean, if you think about it, I know you've seen or heard someone who has just received a grave diagnosis, right? That they don't have so much time to live. They've only got so much time. And the, the fact that that is overwhelming wants them, makes them want to cry out. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's agonizing over the prospect of going to the cross. Remember, Jesus wasn't just some spiritual being wandering around the earth. He had flesh and he had bones and he knew those nails were going to pierce his hands. He knew that the blood was going to drip down his body. He knew that as he hung on the cross, he was going to struggle to breathe. The cross was not going to be a pleasant experience for him. This Father, save me cry is equivalent to Jesus crying out to the Father when he cries out to him in Mark and he says, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew the road ahead of him. He knew the pain and he would have to endure it, but it was overwhelming him. And sometimes in our lives, as we follow Jesus, we are going to experience times similar to that when we are overwhelmed by circumstances that God has called us to, where all we can do is cry out to God, as Christians, we have, we have lost the art of lamenting. I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the line, we have decided that it's better to pretend that things are better than they actually are. We decided it was better to put on a false face, that we grin and bear it, or we roll with the punches until we get knocked out. Here's the thing. We need to understand and submit to the fact that this life, a life of following Jesus, is a life of suffering, especially if we are going to submit to God's will because God's will and our will are going to clash a lot. So it's okay at times to be overwhelmed. It's okay to cry out to God in frustration, to cry out to God in turmoil. God is big and he can handle it. And if Jesus modeled it we can follow in his footsteps too. If Jesus cried out in turmoil, guess what? You can too. But we don't stay in the turmoil. You see, as Jesus faced the prospect of death and agony of the cross, he didn't end with crying out in turmoil. He ended with purpose in mind. He knew that his sole purpose for coming was to die and bring glory to God. And Jesus declared, Father, glorify your name. And when God is glorified, everything is right in the world. A life of sacrifice is, has meaning because God is glorified. As a follower of Jesus, our most important desire and our most important aim should be to bring glory to the Father. That we should bring glory to the Father. That our lives would demonstrate God's glory and His grace. You see, God's glory is the reason that anything exists. It's the reason that he sent Jesus. It's the reason that Jesus rose from the grave. It's the reason that there is salvation. God's glory is the reason for redemption. God's glory is the reason that there is anything good. 
on earth. And our lives, when lived sacrificially, like Jesus's, brings glory to the Father. That is our chief end. And that is our chief goal. That is the sole reason that we exist to bring glory to God, just like Jesus did. Jesus came to die so that God's glory would be on full display. We live a life of submitting to him so that we can display his glory to the world around us too. Verse 29. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. This is the voice of the Lord. Others said the angel has spoken. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of the world has been cast out. As for me, I am lifted up. if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. The cross of Christ is the dividing line in history. The crowd heard the voice from heaven, but they were confused. Some thought it was thunder, some thought it was an angel, but nevertheless, Jesus tells them that the voice was for them. It wasn't for him. Jesus didn't need convincing of his mission. He didn't need reminding that God's name would be glorified, but some of the people there did. And Jesus falls into a small discourse or a conversation about what this all means. I love those old movies where someone has to make a decision and the protagonist draws a line in the sand. And he says, you're either for me or you're against me. Which side of the line are you going to land on? And the cross is that line in the sand. It's the dividing line of history. What I mean is this. The cross brings judgment to the world. People will either believe or they won't. And if they don't believe, according to their lack of belief, they will be judged. But Jesus came to save. Not all people who hear Jesus' message will receive, will believe. And if they don't, they will receive judgment. Another way the cross divides is that it casts out the ruler of this world. Hallelujah. At the cross, the devil was defeated. Do you understand that? Satan is already defeated. He just doesn't believe it yet. He still has some power and he still has some influence, but the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection prove that whatever power and influence that the devil has is limited. All powers in heaven and on earth are subject to Jesus's authority. Time is ticking for Satan. His hour will come too. This is all accomplished on the cross. Jesus is going to be lifted up and people will be drawn to him. People will be drawn into his kingdom. There are some people who look at verse 32 and when they see verse 32 and it says, I will draw all people to myself, they twist this into some kind of universalist doctrine that all people will be saved. But Jesus, when he says that I will draw all people to myself, isn't saying that everyone will be saved. What he's saying is that all types of people will be saved. All tribes, all tongues, all nations. Remember, he's talking to the Greeks and to the Jews right now. The Jewish people believed that salvation was only for them, that the Messiah was limited in scope, that he was serving them alone. But Jesus is here to tell them that it isn't just the Jewish people he came to save, but any who would receive him. He's drawing all that will come, and he does that through the cross. You see, Jesus' suffering is his exaltation. Jesus' crucifixion draws people. When he is lifted up, people come to him. His earthly throne was a cross. His kingdom was brought out of his resurrection. You see, the cross is the dividing line of history. So the question remains, 
Which side are you on? Are you part of the kingdom of God or of the kingdoms of this world? Are you willing to pledge allegiance to Jesus and him alone? Or are you pledging allegiance to something else? After all, Jesus is the only one worthy of our life and our sacrifice. Where are you today? Are you still seeking out the right path? Are you still questioning about this Jesus? I beg of you to make a decision today to join the kingdom of God, to listen to the call of the Father, to respond to the cross of Christ. He wants you to be part of his kingdom. Will you come and serve him? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending King Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we have some time for reflection, as we read these last or sing these last couple of songs, Lord, that we would be reminded of how good and glorious you are. And what a good and glorious king you are to serve. We would be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand. Let's sing. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.